This is Asha Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. When Linda Stewart walked into the room, she didn't suspect the patient she was working with had been exposed to the coronavirus. So I was working with him maybe 15 or 20 minutes in close contact. Then the nurse came in and said that she had just been notified that the patient had come from a facility where someone had tested positive. This week on the podcast, what happens when healthcare workers are exposed to the coronavirus? We hear from two SLPs who share their experience and tell us about their time in self-quarantine. Then we continue our look at healthcare with a checkup. It's been six months since the patient-driven payment model went into effect. We ask what this new payment system has meant for those in skilled nursing facilities. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from Halcyon Rehabilitation. Halcyon Rehabilitation is a therapy provider specializing in physical, occupational, and speech therapies. Halcyon delivers superior services to adults of all ages in need of long-term or short-term rehabilitation in a variety of settings. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's new resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Check out thatsunheardof.org. If you work in healthcare, there's a possibility you will come into contact with a patient that has the coronavirus. And if you're exposed to that patient without personal protective equipment, what happens next? Last week, I spoke to two SLPs who shared their personal stories of potential exposure and self-quarantine. First, we'll hear from Linda Stewart. Linda is a speech-language pathologist in Southern California. She works for Kaiser Permanente in one of their hospitals in San Diego. On March 24th, Linda was performing a swallowing evaluation with a patient. The patient that I saw, he wasn't identified as someone who had droplet precautions or airborne precautions. And so I went into his room as instructed with just gloves, washing my hands and then putting gloves on. Linda says the policies have since changed. In fact, she says if she were to do the same evaluation today, she'd be required to wear a mask. So I was working with him maybe 15 or 20 minutes in close contact. Then the nurse came in and said that she had just been notified that the patient had come from a facility where someone had tested positive. When the nurse came in and told me that the patient had been exposed to COVID-19, I felt fearful because I didn't have a mask on and I knew that I had been in very close proximity to the patient doing oral care, maybe within a foot of his face and without a mask on. So I immediately left the room, washed thoroughly, and then put on PPE, including a mask and eye shield and gloves, new gloves, and following our instructed precautions for a COVID-positive or suspected COVID patient, I finished my eval and then called my manager immediately. Linda says her manager told her to go home, and without contacting anyone, Linda left. Linda waited for test results from the patient. When they finally came in, they were positive, and Linda was put on a 14-day quarantine. For the last eight days, I've slept in the guest room. I've stayed away from anybody in my house. If anybody comes in the room with me, I wear a mask. I mush my hands constantly. I clean surfaces that I've touched. I cook my own food, wash my own dishes, use a separate bathroom. The day I spoke with Linda is the day she received her test results. She had been to a drive-through testing clinic 
the day before I called. They have a, a test kit that involves like a long um, swab, like kind of like a Q-tip on a stick. Um, it's maybe 10 inches long. They had me um, just relax my head. They swabbed inside my mouth and swabbed the back of my pharynx. And then they used the same swab and put it in my nose all the way to the back of my pharynx. So that was really unpleasant, but not painful. It took, you know, 30 seconds to do the test. And then I got the results 24 hours later. Linda tested negative. The fact that I was in such close proximity to someone who was positive, you know, I was within their oral cavity. You know, I could have very likely been positive, but I didn't have any symptoms really. April 7th was Linda's first day back at work. Linda says she was in contact with her team daily. Maybe when I get back, a much higher census of patients will be there. I don't know. There, I do know that they've eliminated all elective procedures. And I also anticipate seeing more patients with dysphagia from coming off of vents. My caseload may change that way. I'm really anxious to get back to my team to help them because I feel like I'm needed. going to take a quick break. If you have questions about how your job is changing because of COVID-19, go to ASHA.org. Information regarding COVID-19 and telepractice, coding, and public policy updates are collected on a single page, and you'll find setting-specific support for healthcare, schools, and academics. Want more information on healthcare? You can watch the recording of the ASHA Virtual Town Hall on SLP service delivery considerations in healthcare during COVID-19. Currently, you can find a link to the collected resources on the banner at the top of ASHA.org. Mandy Woods is an SLP working in home health near Kirkland, Washington. I spoke with Mandy last week about her difficult decision to self-quarantine after feeling she may have been exposed to the coronavirus. Mandy's story starts with a home health visit. Without concern that her patient had COVID-19, she didn't wear a mask. Now, Mandy says that she's required to wear an N95 mask for the duration of all home health visits. During this visit, Mandy learned the man's son was running a fever and attended a school that Mandy knew had a case of coronavirus. When Mandy began to set up the man's next appointment, she realized the son's symptoms were a cause for concern while reading a questionnaire to the man about his health. Mandy was instructed to reach out to his physician, but she didn't get the answers she needed. She was reflecting on the people she'd seen, her friends, their conditions, and she was learning more about COVID-19. And it was around this time that Mandy was faced with a difficult decision. Mandy will be telling the rest of the story. Well, you're sitting there and you're weighing, why are they seeing me for services? Okay. And I was very lucky that at that point, all of my patients could largely be managed over the phone or just with a, a weekly check-in. I decided to stay home for two weeks. So I talked with my patients. I explained the risk. I explained why I was making the recommendations and how I was planning to follow up with them. And I asked them if they would be willing to go on a two-week hold from speech therapy services. And in every case, with the exception of one who asked to be discharged, which I think that was the appropriate decision as well. 
But in every case, they said, I totally understand. Call my doctor and let them know. The concern about being exposed was, it was very nerve wracking because every little cough, every little body ache, every headache, you are wondering, well, is this it? I definitely was concerned that I'm giving this to my son. I'm giving this to my husband. What have I brought into the house? And I had a lot of guilt with that. And I mean, my husband very supportive and no, of course, it's not your fault. Eventually, I mean, the reality is eventually we probably will end up getting this to some degree just because of the prevalence and the fact that I do work in healthcare. I do go out into the community. And even though we are doing everything else in other aspects of our life, it's not, it's not foolproof. So my personal quarantine is over. I did spend the full two weeks at home, uh, completely asymptomatic, no fever, coughing, difficulty breathing, and I am back seeing patients. We're still doing the social distancing in the home, and I'm only out in the community two days a week, but the rest of the time I'm in my home and trying to minimize that contact. I feel incredibly fortunate that I have found a career that is very fulfilling and that I wake up every day and go, man, I love my job. It is so cool that I get to play a part, an active part in hopefully helping to heal this country. It's unique. I feel very honored this morning as I was going out to work, one of my neighbors saw that I was in scrubs and he goes, hey, thank you. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. And that was really, that was really nice. I feel like the community is acknowledging healthcare professionals at this time. And while we shouldn't just acknowledge healthcare professionals, there, there are a lot of people who are keeping this country running and making things possible, as well as the people who are doing their part by staying at home. I think we are in a unique position where we can help a lot of people after something that is extremely trying. And they'll probably talk about it for generations. And that's cool. I want to share one other thing Mandy told me in our conversation. It was fantastic. I, I had a moment to uh, take a look at the courses offered by ASHA um, with their free pass to the ASHA Learning. And I saw some courses. And I'm like, okay, I need to take that. That's, that's exactly what I need to make sure that I'm ready for the caseload that I anticipate seeing in the upcoming months. ASHA is offering free continuing education until June 30th for all ASHA members through the Learning Pass. Check it out by going to on.asha.org slash learningpass2020. That's Learning Pass with a capital L and a capital P. 
Support for ASHA Voices comes from Halcyon Rehabilitation. Halcyon Rehabilitation is passionate about providing personalized attention, support, and education to employees, patients, and healthcare partners. Halcyon is uniquely managed by therapists, starting with the president, who is an occupational therapist. This brings exceptional achievement in many areas, including PDPM, clinical compliance training, and survey readiness. Halcyon currently provides therapy services in skilled nursing centers, outpatient locations, and patient homes throughout South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's new resource, That's Unheard Of. It's always important to check for blind spots in your practice. That's Unheard Of features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. They're quick and easy to use. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. And now we're going to acknowledge an anniversary of sorts. Originally, we planned to dedicate this entire episode to an update on the patient-driven payment model, or PDPM. It went into effect just over six months ago. The new payment system changes the way Medicare reimburses skilled nursing facilities for services patients receive. It was meant to shift the focus from treatment minutes to patient outcomes. Flashback to October 2019 and the changes SLPs were seeing as a result of PDPM were immediate and far-reaching. At ASHA, we heard stories of SLPs losing their jobs, finding their productivity requirements increase, and experiencing an increased emphasis from SNFs to provide group treatment. In the months since this went into effect, a more complete picture began to emerge. Four ASHA voices recorded a panel discussion early last month. And now, only a few weeks later, our world looks very different because of COVID-19. And life inside of SNFs looks very different, too. Instead of bringing you that full conversation, we are going to bring you some excerpts and share some of the data and feedback we've received at this six-month juncture. My guests from this conversation about PDPM were Sarah Warren, ASHA's Medicare expert, and Renee Kinder, Vice President of Clinical Research at Broad River Rehab. At the beginning of our conversation, Renee shared why she found Broad River Rehab's approach to PDPM to be appealing. Many people initially when PDPM was developed were trying to figure out how to operationalize communications across the interprofessional team. And within my current organization, they've developed a multitude of tools to make that easier uh, for therapists to have those conversations. One of the initial tools that they developed was the PDPM Navigator, and it essentially uh, helped teams to sit around the same table together, use a single tool that was really clean and easy to understand, and have an understanding of how different clinical areas would serve as determiners for case mix accuracy. So they've got this simple tool. And I think above everything, what um, has helped organizations to be successful or not successful with the shift to PDPM are those that really prepped by having more clinical conversations. So for those that are not familiar with what an historical Medicare meeting may look like in a skilled nursing facility, oftentimes it was maybe a rehab director coming, reporting the volume of services and the goals for the patient. But now it's very different. We come in, we talk about medical complexity, comorbidity, self-care mobility scores, and then all, of course, all the areas that are determiners for speech. So those that, that prepped by having those conversations, I think have been more successful. Those that 
didn't do as much prep have had, you know, see areas of growth now um, a few months into the model. Okay. So I've heard you mention a team approach. You're talking about care meetings. How do you get SLPs, nurses, OTs, and PTs to work together? Sure. And that's a really good question. So in our industry, I've always said that we do a good job in working in an interdisciplinary team model where you have the person or the patient at the center and we all understand our individual goals and objectives for that patient. PDPM has really forced us into the world of interprofessionalism, which is, of course, a strategic um, initiative within ASHA. The beauty of moving into an interprofessional model is that we not only have our individual goals for the person that we're serving, but we understand each other's scope of practice. Historically, physical therapy, occupational, and speech would go into their evaluation, and they may have a 12-point impairment scale that they're using. Now with PDPM, we are using the minimal data set, or the MDS, as the scale. We're using the definitions within the MDS, and we're all speaking the same language as a result. So it's, it's been really nice, a really nice transition to see. Led by ASHA's Director of Healthcare Services, Monica Sampson, ASHA conducted a survey of clinicians and administrators in SNFs. With more than 4,400 responses, this survey helps to paint a picture of what changed in the industry. In our conversation, Sarah points out that 38% of respondents say they saw some sort of change in their employment. That could be a reduction in hours, pay, or benefits. Another number that jumped out, 39% said they saw an increase in their productivity standards, and 21% saw a change in how their productivity standards were calculated. I asked Sarah what's behind the increased productivity standards. I think it's definitely, you know, trying to understand how to, from the SNFs perspective, manage the bottom line and be effective in their employment decisions. I think the productivity standard, though, is also being influenced by the use of group and concurrent, which changed under PDPM from the way it was structured in um, under the RUG system. 42% said that they felt like they were being forced to do group treatment, so doing it even though they didn't think it was what the patient needed. And 34% said they were forced to do concurrent treatment. And so if you're doing more groups, your productivity is probably being calculated differently. It's probably a little higher as a result of that. So that's also playing into the changes in productivity standards. What I'm hearing you say is because some of the treatment is happening with multiple people at the same time, that that can allow productivity rates to increase. And so expectations for productivity would increase. Yeah, that's one factor for sure. We know that group and concurrent treatment has temporarily ceased in many SNFs because of concerns over COVID-19. And we've heard stories of patient interaction being limited in the dining hall and during exercise. That is to say, although PDPM is still in effect, the way SNFs are choosing to implement group treatment and productivity standards during this pandemic is likely being affected. And now another statistic. When asked if they felt they'd been pressured by their employer to violate any of the standards set forth in the ASHA Code of Ethics, more than 24% of the survey respondents said yes. The survey results also reveal that more than 60% of the respondents who felt that there was an ethics violation spoke to their manager. And I have an example. I spoke with an SLP who wants to remain anonymous. She's located in Ohio in a semi-rural setting. In October, she was concerned about the level of treatment her Medicare Part A patients would be receiving. 
when PDPM rolled out, I was initially not seeing my Med-Aid patients on days that they were scheduled for group therapy. That was a decision made by the site rehab manager, and it just didn't really make sense to me. And I felt like if I was seeing patients five days a week prior to PDPM, and that's what I put on the plan of care, then I should be able to see them five days a week following October 1st. This SLP says she took her concerns to the regional manager. She says she was concerned they were not going to make adequate progress towards goals with treatment. She says at that point, she felt there was an ethics violation. She says the manager agreed the practices weren't appropriate. Now she says she feels she is again in control of her frequency. But she was nervous at first to bring up the subject. With all of these industry changes, You know, we don't always know coming into work if we're going to have patients to see or if we're going to have a job. And working for a company with more speech therapists, I've always kind of felt like if I didn't do what was expected of me, they could easily just let me go and have another speech therapist from the company do my building as well. We can hear how this moment of self-advocacy worked out well for this SLP, but also how daunting it can be to confront a manager. I asked our guests for advice in practicing self-advocacy or advocacy on behalf of those that they work with. It all goes back to your plan of care. And therapists historically maybe have not always communicated their clinical findings from the plan of care and what the individual needs outside of, you know, I need 45 minutes a day, I feel like. I always think that the onus goes back to the therapist to speak up for themselves and hold themselves accountable to have those conversations with their rehab director, therapy program manager within the community to say, Mrs. Jones has a decline from independent to moderate impairment. As such, my evidence base tells me I'm going to need this many minutes a day for this many times a week. And once you become comfortable with having those conversations, once you set the expectation that you will stand up for yourself and that you will have um, that level of communication early in the stay, it should make life easier for you down the road. But it begins with having a voice at the beginning of the stay, talking clinically about what you see in the individual, and then um, if and when needed, taking it to levels beyond your um program manager or your rehab director to ensure that your organization is functioning in the highest ethical way possible. As I mentioned earlier, in the second half of the interview, we're joined by Ginny Lear to share a home health perspective. Ginny added her thoughts on the importance of self-advocacy. I think to piggyback on what Renee said, I think Education is a big component, education of the speech language pathologist. And in the home health world, you know, our reimbursement is all dependent upon the OASIS assessment. And the OASIS is not easy. It's not black and white. It's very complicated. Nobody wants to do it, but we have to do it and we have to do it right. Uh, If it's not scored correctly, then that is going to be a problem with regard to our patients getting the amount of therapy that's needed. And so I go back to the speech-language pathologist should get some sort of good education 
understanding about the OASIS and uh, how to accurately score your OASIS. And it's in your employer's best interest to give you that education because, you know, that will affect how the business runs, essentially. I think that historically in the home health field, there was some overutilization of therapy going on, uh, which was one of the factors that led to making the changes for PDGM. And so there's this really weird uh, feeling amongst clinicians in the home health world that they are being you know, forced to uh, reduce or change their plan of care when actually it comes down to the data that is collected. And if it's collected properly, then that should be the just the right plan of care for the patient. We'll get more data and information in the uh, second half of the year, um, but we've got to have accurate data in order to make those changes, just like Renee had said. Jenny also shared about her experience working on the technical expert panel. Here's how Sarah describes those panels. You know, technical expert panels are convened by Medicare to do a deep dive into an issue, develop quality measures, revise a payment system, you know, something that's going to lead to a fundamental change and hear directly from clinicians um, and other stakeholders. So in the case of Jenny and Renee, you know, people who um, represent the skilled nursing facility or the home health agency industry and rehab companies, and they bring you together. They give you like hundreds of pages of documents to peruse about 24 hours before the whole thing starts. And then you go and you sit in a room for eight hours with an agenda that really could fill up an entire week and you just slam through the material and you try to help Medicare and their contractor make sense of the data that they have in front of them. And this is what Jenny had to say about her experience working on the panel. So that was a little while back when PDGM was initially named HHGM, Home Health Groupings Model. And I was asked to participate in the technical expert panel to try to develop uh, some sort of plan for the new payment system. And it was fascinating. And there were people from all over the industry on that panel who all had uh, particular concerns regarding the new payment system. Just as a recap for those who who are not super familiar with PDGM. It's a movement from uh, therapy-driven reimbursement to more of a uh, clinical-driven reimbursement system. And uh, there were a lot of concerns back then as far as what's going to happen first and foremost, you know, to the patient and are they going to get the services that they need. And secondly, um, there was a lot of concern as far as what was going to happen to the professionals in the industry. And so I just uh, have kept my finger on the pulse ever since then and being as involved as I possibly can uh, with regard to uh, navigating the rough waters uh, with the implementation of PDGM. And could you tell me a little bit about why you chose to participate in a technical expert panel? It was very flattered to be asked to participate. I'd had a lot of experience working as a clinician in home health. In addition, the position that I had with my company 
really is about compliance and teaching people how to do things appropriately, how to follow the rules that were brought forth by Medicare in order to participate in the Medicare reimbursement system. And I, I found um, it very gratifying to be a part of maybe making decisions and driving the decision-making to a final outcome, a positive outcome. Uh, I felt like it was a a good time in my career to uh, participate and have a voice and uh, be a leader. At the end of the conversation, I asked Sarah about ASHA's advocacy efforts relating to PDPM. We've been engaged with the SNF side of this since 2016, and at every step of the way, we've taken every opportunity we can to advocate for our members, you know, participating in the technical expert panels, commenting on proposed rules, requesting meetings with CMS and the Department of Health and Human Services. And at every step, our job is to bring the clinical and patient perspective to the conversation, not just the payment or the financial or the business concerns about the changes to the payment system. You know, we identify potential areas of weakness, like paying more for an institutional admission from a hospital to home health that might disadvantage people admitted to home health from the community, or not penalizing skilled nursing facilities who exceed the 25% limitation on group and concurrent. And so we identify these potential challenges and we I try to identify ways that we can recommend to CMS they mitigate the risk. And we bring the trends to them in real time. So we are working with APT and AOTA, and we're sending monthly emails to CMS, the various staff at CMS who manage these payment systems. And we're saying, okay, since we've emailed you last, these are the trends we're picking up. And then we're trying to figure out who can we work in coalition with. I mean, APTA and AOT are the obvious allies on this. We're letting physician groups know that we're hearing that. We need to continue to determine what things are happening and what things need to be changed and advocate for changes in these payment systems. Do you have more questions about PDPM, or are you looking for resources to share with your team, administrators, or peers? Go to asha.org and search PDPM. We'll link to many of the articles and resources on the blog post for this episode as well. Find that at blog.asha.org. And look for The Leader Magazine, which will report on PDPM throughout the year. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech-Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from Halcyon Rehabilitation. Start a career with them as a speech-language pathologist and share your experience and passion with their innovative, patient-focused care team. Explore current opportunities at www.halcyonrehab.net and contact them today. Support for ASHA Voices also comes from ASHA's new resource, That's Unheard Of. This online resource features a variety of tools developed to enhance your soft skills while helping you manage your practice and develop effective treatment plans. Learn more at thatsunheardof.org. Production assistance comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. ASHA Voices